Well, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming. My name is Dave Nielsen. I'm with Intel, uh, specifically Intel Software in the uh, Big Data Technologies Group. And um, we've got a full lineup of three speakers, in, in, in addition to myself, who are going to be introducing to you the concept of uh, large-scale deep learning with uh, some demos and some explanations of uh, how things work within the Spark ecosystem. Um, in particular, we have Tim and Suji, who are from Elephant Scale. They have been working in the Spark ecosystem for quite some time, uh, written books, do training, consulting, all of the above, and um, are contributors to the Big Deal project that you'll learn about. And also we have Alex Kellanen. He's the VP of AI and machine learning over at Seismic, and he has been uh, involved in quite a few uh, image recognition projects. And uh, together we put together this presentation along with some uh, um, uh, content, some Jupyter Notebooks, such uh, demos and that kind of thing so that you can go back and try some of this at home. Uh, and so uh, without any further ado, I'm gonna go ahead and just turn it over to uh, Tim and then after that will be Alex and then following that will be Suji. So uh, Tim, jump on up here. I'll turn it over to you. Hi, thanks Dave. Um, so yeah, we're going to be talking today about uh, large-scale deep learning with BigDL. And so I'm Tim Fox. Uh, I, I work for Elephant Scale. We do consulting, training, um, and uh, 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 contributing to BigDL as well. I have a background in data engineering, data science. Um, so that's about me. Um, Elephant Scale, we do um, uh, workshops, training in big data and AI. We do consulting as well. We focus on, especially on uh, machine learning and deep learning uh, on uh, big data platforms like Hadoop and Spark. So, uh, uh, okay, so I'm gonna give you a quick roundup of uh, AI and machine learning and deep learning. I'm sure this is uh, a review for almost everybody here. Obviously, you know, AI is a general, uh, a general term talking about intelligent tasks. Machine learning is a subset of AI that talks about uh, being able to learn from data without being explicitly programmed. And deep learning uses neural networks to solve some hard problems. It's a subset of machine learning. So some of the applications that we associate with deep learning are uh, you know, things like image recognition, uh, self-driving cars, um, uh, facial, face recognition, other kind of similar problems. So um, now, you know, neural networks have been with us a long time, uh, you know, but there is there were some reasons why in the past uh, those didn't necessarily uh, work as well, you know, due to compute power, uh, insufficiently sized uh, training sets, lack of parallelization. So now we're kind of in a renaissance of deep learning because now we have the the kind of the culmination of big data for which gives us the ability to train our models. You know, we have a big compute based on the cloud ecosystem that we have today. You know, on AWS, we're able to. Uh, able to, uh, in a very uh, affordable and flexible way, be able to acquire the compute resources that we need to be successful in deep learning. So um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the, uh, the AI so software ecosystem. So in terms of machine learning, we have great libraries like uh, Scikit-Learn, Weka, Mahout, et cetera. And in terms of distributed, we have Spark, ML, MLlib, and H2O that allow us to distribute that to scale. Um, in terms of deep learning, you know, we have frameworks like uh, TensorFlow, Theano, Cafe, et cetera, um, and many others that are focused on uh, deep learning as well. And in terms of deep learning at scale, we're going to be talking about that primarily. We feel like BigDL, um, our open source project, has uh, it's a unique space there, but there are other frameworks that are working in that distributed deep learning as well. So 
machine learning and big data. So now, you know, a lot of the machine learning work that's been done in the past has been focused on kind of single, single computer uh, resources. We know kind of vertical scalability. A lot of our, you know, popular libraries tend to be more single node based or have very limited ability to distribute. But, you know, the big data ecosystem, of course, is designed around kind of massive parallelization um, and uh, distributing our data on a cluster. So. Um, here are some of the modern deep learning frameworks we've mentioned before, like uh, TensorFlow, Torch, MXNet, Keras, Theano, Cafe, et cetera. And of course, we're going to be talking about BigDL. So um, some of the tools that we have here for scalable big data, of course, is Apache Spark. And on top of Apache Spark, there's MLlib, which is going to give us scalable machine learning, although not necessarily deep learning. Now, BigDL we're talking about today is going to bring deep learning to Apache Spark. Of course, TensorFlow and many other, uh, many other uh, frameworks are, allow us to do uh, deep learning as well. So um, Amazon Machine Learning, I'm sure as many of you here at this conference are familiar with, uh, give us a lot of ready-to-go algorithms, et cetera. Okay, so let's talk about BigDL. So it is a deep learning library for Apache Spark. So it gives us uh, feature parity with a lot of the deep learning frameworks that you're already familiar with, like TensorFlow, Cafe, Torch, et cetera. And it can, but importantly, it can scale the huge data sets built on top of the ecosystem of Apache Spark and Hadoop. Um, so when we build a production ML deep learning uh, system, it can be quite complex. And the actual uh, machine learning or deep learning piece, we can kind of see there in the middle there, that is in some ways some of the most interesting part. But in terms of our orchestration or whatever, in, in terms of the volume of code, not necessarily the, the, the biggest or most complex. So, um, you know, Dealing with that scalability of deep learning, we have to go in and uh, and uh, consider that. So, um, big DL is designed to fill the gap between big data and deep learning. So, going to give us the uh, sending compute to data, et cetera, and using the data locality that we talk about in terms of big data on HDFS, S3, and other um, other distributed file systems, and allows us to use cluster managers like Yarn, Mesos, et cetera. Um, now, BigDL sits on top of Spark, so uh, it allows us to use that uh, re resource like uh, in-memory compute, integrates with Spark MLlib and streaming and, and other uh, Spark resources, allows us to do easy development with Jupyter Notebook. So comparing with other uh, frameworks like TensorFlow, one of the advantages that we have here with BigDL is the fact that it can run natively on Spark and Hadoop, able to be scalable across massive clusters and across massive data sets. Um, so, uh, again, big DL is going to provide the big compute plus big data. So um, it's going to uh, help us in balancing our needs for that. It's going to allow for massive scalability. You know, Hadoop is the, kind of the big data platform for on-premises deployment. Um, it also is going to play nicely with other big DL with other frameworks. We can use our existing TensorFlow or Cafe models at scale in big DL. We can also export uh, our models from big DL to TensorFlow and Cafe. So some of the use cases, of course, we can use BigDL for fraud detection, sentiment analysis, image recognition, many other use cases. We have a, uh, a, a reposit GitHub repository there that, which has a number of use cases here uh, on uh, BigDL. So, okay, so a lot of people ask us about GPUs and CPUs. Um, so GPUs, of course, have been very successful for uh, deep learning performance. Uh, CPU in the past wasn't vectorized and not optimized for parallel compute, but Intel modern Xeon processors have vectorized linear algebra that have been able to approach the speed of GPUs. Um, so uh, the Intel math kernel library is what's enabled a lot of that um, in, in a, a, a performance efficiency and tuning to happen. Um, so, and you can see that Intel's been doing a lot of work in terms of tuning libraries. This is actually an example from 
uh, cafe, but it is uh, pl applicable to Big DL as well, showing the performance improvements that we've seen in recent years in terms of tuning deep learning to CPU-based performance. Now, in big data, we want to be able to run our uh, we want to be able to run our deep learning models on our existing Hadoop and Spark clusters. So, uh, in able to do that, we can't always rely on uh, having GPU resources available. So. Uh, uh, Big DL is uh, tuned to run very effectively on CPU-based resources. So, um, okay. So when we're running Big DL, we know a lot of you are developers. We want to make it as easy as possible to have you get started there. So we have several different options. We have a Docker container available that you can get uh, uh, from Docker Hub. We have a VM sandbox that you can download as well. We'll get you ready to go as a developer. We also have an Amazon AMI, including Dave will tell you later about free um, credit that you can use to try out Big DL. Okay, so I'm going to give a brief demo here on um, what we have for uh, a brief demo here on what we have for uh, Big DL. I'm going to show you a few examples before turning things over to my colleague uh, uh, Alex here, who's going to uh, be um, is going to be demonstrating a few other things. So let me get this going here. All right, let me switch this over to. All right, so I'm trying to switch this over to. Um, sorry. There we go. All right, so let me get actually to um, I'm going to get actually to what I'm going to demonstrate here. Okay, so this is actually one of the examples that I have here. We have here in our repository the link we're going to be giving you. Um, it is based on a. Uh, I have to show you several examples. Many of you may be familiar with um, the. Uh, you, you may be familiar with the Iris dataset, which uh, is a simple example that we're going to demonstrate here. So um, let me go ahead and uh, show you this. So this data set here is going to um, uh, show, we'll show with uh, several examples. Um, and uh, so this uh, is, is actually showing from Big DL. So you can see here that we have some parameters here in the notebook. Uh, this is uh, the learning rate, training epics, et cetera. So showing that. Um, and we, in this, for this particular uh, layer, we have uh, four input dimensions. Uh, we have uh, three output classes. And uh, we're have running that on a simple feedforward neural network that looks like this. You know, we have an input layer, then we have a single uh, hidden layer feedforward, and then we have a softmax layer on the end. So, um, so, uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and size the hidden layers. So, um, you know, we actually in this case we have a small data set here, and we can go ahead and. Uh, use some, some simple rules of thumb here to say, okay, so uh, you know, we'll, we'll size the hidden layers appropriately, and then we're going to use um, Spark to actually load the IRIS tra uh, training and test data sets into um, Spark data frames. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to then convert those Spark data frames to RDDs that you can see there. Um, we're going to look at our class data set. We can see here that if you're familiar with the IRIS data set, we're looking at three, out, uh, three labels here, uh, Setosa, Virginica, and Versicolor. And then uh, we're going to look at what the data looks like here. Now what we're going to do is in Big DL, we're going to set up our network. So notice here that we're setting up a, a single hidden layer with ReLU activation. And then we're going to uh, set an output layer using softmax because we have three output classes. Um, so then what we're going to do is we're going to train the model. So here's how we do that. We have a optimizer here, um, which is going to, um, uh, going to use Adagrad here with our learning rate, et cetera. We're also then going to set our validation logic here for that model. And we're going to output the results here, which we're going to then view, be able to view those uh, results in TensorBoard. And we'll demonstrate that in a minute. And um, 
let me skip ahead a little bit. So then let's look at our results. So we show our, uh, we have a, a curve here which shows our loss during training. We're also going to look at our top one accuracy here during training as well. So there is that. So um, then we're going to see our visualizations on TensorBoard. So um, give me a second here. Yeah. So and uh, so we're going to load that on TensorBoard there. So yeah. So you can see here. Now we are running on TensorBoard. Of course, uh, TensorBoard is part of the uh, part of the uh, uh, TensorFlow project. However, we use it as well in BigDL because it's uh, awesome for doing visualizations and that kind of thing. So um, uh, you can see here that we have more visualizations on the weights, etc. Finally, we look at the results here. So you can see the result on uh, this here. We have a, uh, a confusion matrix here. So you see we had actually one misclassification that we have here. The prediction accuracy here is, I think, 96%. So we have that as well. So OK. So that you saw the, uh, the kind of the iris example running on the RDD-based API. Now, those of you who are familiar with the uh, Spark uh, ML 2.0 uh, pipeline API, we also have an interface for that. That uses the transformer and estimator interface. So I'm going to go ahead and um, uh, show you that here. So notice that we have uh, a similar setup here where we're setting up our parameters here for input classes, output, uh, the input, uh, uh, the, the input classes, output classes, etc. Now, notice here we're setting up vector assembler and a pipeline uh, following a similar pattern for those of you who are familiar with Spark ML. So the cool thing about the pipeline API is that it will fit very well in your current Spark ML pipelines. Those of you who are familiar with Spark ML, you probably recognize this, the vector assembler, standard scalar uh, pipelines, etc. The cool thing about BigDL is that it will plug directly into that. So you can go ahead and use that um, as part of your current pipelines, and there's a lot of great uh, infrastructure available for that on, uh, as part of Spark um, ML. So, um, okay. So once we did that, we're just going to set up similar how we did before. We're going to set up our uh, our layers here using the DL classifier cl task, which is the it is going to implement the transformer uh, interface within Spark ML. Then we're going to go ahead and set our our. Uh, um, our training parameters here, and we're going to go ahead and call fit uh, method on the model, which is then going to fit that on our training set and get a classification model. So, okay. So then once we do that, we can go ahead and get our um, output. You can see there there's a now a prediction column, which is going to give our prediction for what the uh, output class is going to be. Then we're also going to um, we're going to then do our precision uh, recall, AUC, area under curve, calculate precision recall, accuracy, et cetera, and do other kind of similar metrics that we would normally do on a machine learning problem like this, um, similar to what we just did on the previous example. Uh, and then we'll look at, we can look at the accuracy and confusion matrix there as well. So, okay, so that is, uh, so this is showing you know, here uh, how we can do this with a very simple data set for IRIS. Now, a lot of you are probably thinking, you know, that's great for Iris, but Iris is a pretty trivial data set. You know, how could we use BigDL for something a little bit more interesting? So Alex is actually going to be coming up shortly to show you that, but I also wanted to um, illustrate one more example as well. Of course, all these examples are available on the GitHub that you'll have access to and can, you can play with. Uh, I'm going to show you an example on a uh, credit card uh, fraud detection. So um, let me go ahead and bring that up here. 
Okay, so we're going to see another feed. This is going to be another feed-forward network. Again, now we do support, you know, other, many other types of networks you're going to see. Uh, our, uh, Alex is going to show you um, a convolutional example. And, of course, we have LSTMs and RNNs and many other types. Again, this is another feed-forward network just for the sake of simplicity. And we're going to look at this for a credit card fraud data set where we're going to then use this feed-forward network on some PCA uh, credit card fraud data in order to do a, um, a, prediction, uh, a prediction task, uh, classification task for this. So you can see our dimensions uh, here for that data set. So, okay. So here is our notebook. Um, you know, again, we're going to be import doing all of our imports with BigDL. We're going to be setting up our, our parameters here for our learning. Uh, you know, notice our parameters here: batch size in ten thousand. We're setting up our our um, our, our layers here uh, for parameters here for number of inputs, number of uh, output classes. In this case, is binary, so that's two. We're going to have ten um, uh, ten uh, neurons in our hidden layer. Um, and so we're going to go ahead and actually, again, kind of illustrate how we came up with that number, et cetera. I'm not going to go too far into that in the short period of time that we have now. Um, and so now what we're going to do is um, we're going to uh, resize our hidden layers. Now, again, we're going to be loading our uh, input data set into a Spark data frame. And we're going to be selecting uh, you know, call, uh, our items of interest out of there just to illustrate what we have here. Again, in this case, uh, you can see the summary statistics on uh, that particular data set. So um, then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the class frequency. Now, in this case, we actually have uh, the vast majority of our uh, transaction classes here are normal rather than fraud, which I hope at most banks that is the case. I hate to think that there's a lot of fraud transactions, but we are going to take that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of imbalance in the training into account in terms of how we are going to do the training. So then we're going to go ahead and split here. What we're going to do is actually we're going to do training and test by adjusting by time, then uh, you know, have uh, items past a certain time be part of the test set before that is part of the training set. We're now going to use, we're illustrating actually this with the RDD-based API, so we're going to go ahead and, and do our feature extraction task and put that there. Um, now we're going to, uh, uh, going to set that up in, in the RDD of the sample class that we have. We're going to then, um, I'm going to skip here to how we do our, um, again, this is a, this is a, uh, a feed-forward network. We're going to uh, set up our, um, our layers. Now we're going to do our training set. You know, notice here we're using SGD for our, um, uh, our optimization. We're going through, again, we're going to be saving all of our logs to a directory here that we can then look at our uh, training metrics and everything in TensorBoard. Um, and we're also going to be able to do uh, some uh, visualizations right here in Jupyter Notebook. And you can look at that as well. So we have some, um, you know, we have some, some illustrations there. At the end of the day, we're going to then see the um, confusion matrix, accuracy, and other numbers um, uh, for this example as well. So you can look there at the training center. We can go ahead and look at TensorBoard um, to illustrate those things. Uh, I think we'll skip that for the sake of brevity here. Also, we're going to go ahead and look at um, the uh, confusion matrix and accuracy score there. And uh, I illustrate the confusion matrix here. Um, and you can see here, let me hand here, that you, know, the, um, you can see the confusion matrix there as well. So, all right, so that actually brings me to the end of my demo. So you can see here what we have is um, we actually have uh, 
are, uh, I actually have this currently running here in a uh, Docker container um, where we're all set up and you can actually look at these uh, uh, notebooks that are here as part of that, including the three examples I just showed you. Uh, these are those, so you notice we have a number of feed-forward examples. This is what I've looked at, as well as other types of networks. Now, I'm going to um, turn this over to Alex now. So Alex is going to uh, be going over an um, uh, image recognition example using a convolutional layers uh, and integrate that with BigDL. So we'll go ahead. I will... Um, you know, actually, I think we'll, in my case, if you have any questions, we'll save those for the end and, so, um, and go ahead and do that. But anyway, I'm going to bring up Alex now to, to take it uh, from here. So, Thank you, Tim. Right, thanks, do you know how to flip back to the presentation? Um, let's see here. Is that it? There we go. There, okay. are, there are four buttons here. We'll figure it All out. Right, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Tim talked about big DL and general how to apply deep learning and actual libraries for different examples. In the next 10-15 minutes, I'll talk to you about a classical example of what you usually think about when you talk about deep learning, which is image recognition, and how we can implement and what kind of designs we use to recognize images and how we can implement that in big DL. I started working on machine learning back in late 1990s when I was in school and doing my master's. And I remember one of the exciting parts at the time was I implemented a new algorithm. I actually used a 32-bit API to get access to the entire 64 megabytes of memory available on the computer at the time, which made my code run much faster. But you can imagine things were much smaller and slower at the time. This all began to change about 10 to 8 years ago when we both got a lot more data. We got much better processing power. And also we got, which may be known less, uh, much better algorithms. So it was more difficult to train neural networks in the past because we actually didn't know how to do it efficiently. And that, was, and that changed around 2006, 2007, which gave this huge momentum to deep learning that we're seeing today. And currently, I work at Seismic. And Seismic recently combined with a company called Rocket Fuel. And both those companies now combined together provide intelligent marketing to advertisers. And Seismic runs a big chunk of internet advertising behind the scenes, which creates a lot of demands and requirements for us. On the execution part, we've been hit with about 100 billion requests per day. Just to give you a sense of scale here, that's about 70 million per minute or over a million per second. So that requires us to build models that run really, really fast and produce results in milliseconds. On the other hand, when we train models, we accumulate a lot of data, necessarily, at which we, so we have to build algorithms that work efficiently, use frameworks such as Spark to train on such data sets. In the next few slides, I'll talk more about how we can apply the CROSS, the Spark, and convolutional neural networks to design an image recognition example using BigDL. A lot of you may have seen this kind of picture when you looked for deep learning on Google or anywhere else. Who has seen something like this, these dots connected to each other? Great. Does everyone know what they mean? 
some subset of people who saw this know what this means. So yeah, when I saw this myself for the first time, this was completely not intuitive at all to me. And so I kind of gave a different presentation to this. And what these dots stand for are the current values at the network, uh, the neural network level. In this case, and I'm gonna push the right button, there you go. The first blue level is, blue layer is the input values we get from the outside. In this case, these are actually intensities of a grayscale image, just four values. So you can imagine we took an image and just took four pixels and pushed them to the network for whatever reason. So we need to calculate the values of the next layer. And the way we do it is that each network, every network has weights associated with it. So each network design defines weights. And in this case, in the fully connected network, we use weights to calculate the next value. And the formula is actually very, very simple and it's right there at the top. We take each weight, multiply by the corresponding value and sum them up. That's all we really do. It's a very simple formula and you'll get this number. Now, if we do only that, we'll quickly find that this type of network cannot really do anything interesting. Because if we just do linear transformations and multiplication and additions of linear transformations, we can approximate only a small number of functions. So that's why neural networks have functions that are called nonlinear functions. And the most popular one used these days is called rectified linear unit. And it's, again, a very, very simple function. All it does, if the value is below zero, it truncates it at zero. If it's positive, it passes it forward unchanged. So in this case, the number is negative. We apply rectify linear unit, we'll get zero. Then we repeat the same process, the same simple formula again and again and again. For the second value, it's positive. We have a positive value. Negative value, it's zero. And some other positive value, 15. And we're done. So this layer is done. Then we move on to the next layer. And the key point about neural networks is that the neural networks only look backward to one layer back. They, it doesn't care what happened beforehand. Here we can have two layers or 50 layers. This calculation does not really care. And that allows us to create a really powerful networks that work with more and more complex features over time, as we will see in a few slides. So in this case, we apply the same formula, apply weights, we get a negative number, which becomes zero, and a positive number, and we're done. So it doesn't matter what these numbers mean on this particular example. That will become more obvious in a few slides. But I have one quick question for you. So for the first two layers, how many total weights do we have here for the first layer? So when we calculate, we go from blue to the green one. What's the total number of weights? 16, so four by four. And the second layer from green to purplish, how many weights are there? Four, eight, seven, huh. So eight, right? So to calculate the first value in the output layer, we'll need four weights, and then the second value also four weights. So it's basically multiply m by n how many cells you have in the first layer and how many cells you have in the second layer. If approximately you have the same number of cells, it's a quadratic function, right? So four and four, 16, thousand, thousand, million, and so on and so forth. Now the reason why it's important is this. So now we have this deep, this network that's basically is an absolutely perfectly fine neural network. We can use it to recognize images. And we can use it as an example. This, so that's what these connections and dots actually mean, right? Values at the nodes and the connections or weights that we use to calculate the next value. So we'll use this network to recognize images. And in this case, a very simple image 
we'll try to use uh, images of handwritten digits, like four. So four looks to us like this, but to computers and neural networks, they represent it as numbers. In this case, it's a matrix with most numbers zero because it's a black background, and then you can actually make out number four in that series of numbers. And we're gonna feed those numbers into the network and see if we can train it and, and it can learn to recognize those numbers. So there is only one issue with this. And previously we saw the neural network in the linear form, a bunch of dots. Here I'm gonna represent it in the form of a square so it matches our images more or less. But really it doesn't matter how you draw layers. It's a line or you do it in the matrix, you just fold it into each other, it's exactly the same thing. So the first image here, the first matrix here is the input image. And the next matrix here is the first layer. What we're gonna do, we're gonna take the input values from the image and calculate the values in the next layer, just like we did a few slides ago, right? So we take every single value on the input image, apply weights, and calculate the first output value. And then we do it again. Now a new set of weights, we apply it to all the input values, we calculate the next output value. And we continue until we calculate every single value in this layer by applying this very simple formula. So nothing really changes. I just changed how I draw these things. So the question that I have to you now is, let's say we take a 200 by 200 image, which is not a huge, huge image by any stretch of imagination, right? So how many values will we have at the, at the input level? If it's 200 by 200, what's the total number of, and it's a grayscale image, only one pixel, one, one number per pixel. 40,000, right? That's, that's the right answer. So we have 40,000 values in the first layer, and we have 40,000 values in the second layer. So how many connections do we have between those layers? Is anybody good with zeros? That would be 16 billion. Oh, 1.6 billion, sorry. So, so just in the first two layers, applying it to not a huge image, we have 1.6 values we have to keep somewhere in memory, and we have to run computation through them. And it's just the first two layers. Now, we wanna do deep learning, right? So we wanna maybe throw like 10 layers. They'll be like 16 billion values. So that's not gonna fit anywhere in any reasonable computer this, this, today. And if they could squeeze this kind of, these kind of values in the computer, it will take forever to do every single pass to the network for a single image, because there's like 16 billion values you have to calculate multiple times and so on and so forth. So we cannot train really efficiently. Maybe in the future we can. But the problem is more fundamental. 16 billion means we have 16 billion parameters we have to train. And if you look at uh, a theory behind it, and there are different estimates, but my rule of thumb is you should have approximately the same number of examples as you have parameters you need to train. So somebody somewhere will need to come up with billions of labeled images that say this is the car, this is a giraffe, this is something else. The biggest data set today we have is called ImageNet data set, and it has about 10 million images. It's like a thousand times fewer. And even if you were to able to find this data set, now imagine how long it will take to train this network. The network is huge, the data set is huge, it will be years before you get the first answer. And you won't be able to tweak your results quickly enough. So that didn't work. And that's why we invented a convolutional neural network to solve this particular problem of 
a huge number of values or weights if we simply naively apply a fully connected neural network to images. And the convolutional neural network actually comes out of really fascinating research done in 1964, 1960s, by Hubel and Wiesel. And what they did, they took cats, anesthetized them, and then showed them different images. And they connected to some of their neurons uh, in the brain. And they measured which neurons responded to which images. And for a long time, the, the experiment didn't work at all. So they were showing uh, dots in different places, and the neurons would not fire. And then by accident, they put a line uh, drawn on the, on the glass and slid it across the field of view of the cat, and the neuron fired. And that's where they discovered that that particular neuron fires only when it sees a tilted line that slides from left to right. It does not respond to anything else. If you go up or down, it doesn't do anything. If it's not a line but a dot, it doesn't do anything. That was very weird, because if you think about it, cats nor humans have the line recognition neurons. Right? We don't have like, specific design neurons that recognize lines, the other one recognizes cars, the third one recognizes you know, cats. They're all the same, so we'll, we, we know that. We looked at the brain tissue of animals and humans, and the all neurons look exactly the same. So how come one neuron responds to one signal and the other one to something completely different altogether? And so they designed this theory, came up with the theory that neocortex in animals, and including us, is hierarchical. You have the layers of neurons, the first layer responds to some really basic things like dots and light appearing, the next layer responds to more complex things like lines and circles, subsequent layers respond to movements, and eventually we end up with neurons that fire when you see, you know, a person you know, to a particular person. And so we borrowed these ideas and applied them to convolutional neural networks. And two ideas, one is a hierarchical, the other one is the local visual cortex. And local means that neurons that respond to signals in our vision, visual cortex, they only cover a small area of our field. So each neuron watches only a small area of our field of view. And if you shift out of it, this neuron stops responding. So in other words, it does not look at the whole field, it looks only at a small area. And by looking at these two things, completely lost all the lines. So when I, build, when I build a neural network, you can imagine the lines between those. That is hierarchical, and the first layers respond to very basic features, but as we go further along through the neural network, it res neurons respond to more and more complex features and eventually give us the answer. Is it a car, or is it a giraffe, or some other object? And there are two key features in the convolution neural network that makes it different from a fully connected network. The first one is a convolution, and the second one is pooling. And they're actually quite simple. So convolution, if you remember in the fully connected example, we had all the inputs from the first layer, we applied weights to get the first value of the next layer. What the convolution does, it says we're not gonna do that. Instead, we're only gonna look at the small set of pixels next to each other. In this case, two by two. In the real networks, you typically see five by five or seven by seven, but still is a very small field. We apply weights to only these pixels, and we calculate the first output. Then, we simply shift by one, and we take the next group of pixels and calculate the next output. And also, these are the same weights. We don't even change the weights between these tra transitions. So now, we just slide down the image, and we calculate the output values. So we went from 
Well, in this case, it would have been 15 by 15, 225 weights to only four. And in a large image, it would have been billions of weights, as you've just, we've just seen, it still would be only four, or 25, it's a five by five matrix. So the number of weights that we have now does not depend on the size of an image. If the image is bigger, we just do slightly more calculations, but the number of weights is the same. So that's how we solve the problem of enormous amount of weights that we end up with in the fully connected network. If you do research, read about this, you might read this called as filters. The filter is basically this set of weights that we apply in this way. So both are synonyms, and typically it's called a filter. And the second concept is pooling. The pooling is just scaling the image down. So once we go through one layer of convolution, we want to scale it down, and there are various algorithms to scale. For example, if you go to Photoshop and you scale it there, it'll apply some sophisticated algorithm. In neural networks, uh, convolution neural networks, we use a very simple algorithm where we pick simply the highest value, which works really well and super easy to calculate. Just pick the highest value and we're done. In this case, we shrink the image from four by four to two by two, it became much smaller. And then we repeat that multiple times until we shrink our input to a very small set of, set of values, and then we can apply a fully connected network to that smaller set and get our classification. So on the top, you can see if we apply it to a number, we just convolution, pooling, convolution, pooling, and then fully connected. And then the answer would be an array of only 10 values where we would see one that corresponds to an image that our network recognized. Or in terms of images, you can see at the bottom, we take an image, we do the convolution, then we shrink it, another convolution, we shrink it again, and then we end up with, uh, with the classification. For small images, we can have a, a simple data sets like MNIST data set, digit data set. We can have small networks. And in fact, this network is called LANET5, and it's a classical network that was designed back in 98. Uh, and it was used by USPS to recognize digits on an envelope. So it's a production quality neural network you can use tomorrow to recognize handwritten digits. For, to recognize more complex images, all we really do these days is simply add more layers. So we go more and more layers, we need more images to train, but it can recognize a lot more images. So I wanna show you a quick example. There's a, a cool site, let me try to switch. Okay. I need, quali I need qualified help. So switched. Yeah. All right. Oh, now you need to switch. <coughs> Done before. How do you do it? Can we switch laptops here? Uh, switch uh, inputs here? Sorry. Something happened? Huh? Maybe it's because I. Okay, we're good. Okay, yep. All right. All right, thank you. 
So we'll share the links uh, afterwards, so you'll be able to find this website. But what it does, it implements a Linnet 5 neural network in the browser, where you can draw a digit and it will recognize it. And a couple of things I'd like to show you is the convolution. So it goes through every layer. The first is the input image. This is the first convolution. That's pooling, so same image as before, just smaller, and then so on and so forth until we end up in the array at the top where it makes guesses what it can be. And actually here it guessed incorrectly by saying eight. So this output, for example, if you look at this convolution, it learned over time to identify these interesting shapes like top and bottom curvy things, like the ends of, of these digits. And what it does, and it sends this information further down the network, and the network uses this information to identify the image. That's only one of the inputs, but that's what this little convolution actually learned to do using only a small number of a small filter, five by five. So if I draw a different image here, let's say four, you see it still finds these interesting shaped top and bottom curvy things, and it ignores straight lines. But then there's a different convolution that does find the straight vertical lines. And so all this information is being fed to higher layers, and the eventual network learns to merge all these small features and to come to a conclusion. If there are so many straight lines, so many diagonal lines, so many uh, endings at the top and the bottom, then it has to be number four. And most of the time that's correct. Sometimes it, sometimes it makes mistakes, but you can train this network to be accurate to the 9.9 99.7% accuracy, which is quite remarkable for such a simple network. Oh, and I have another demo. Okay, so that was theory. Now I'll show you what the code to implement all this actually looks in Big DL. And after the, this presentation, you can follow the links, you can download the code, and you can, uh, they will give away credits for AMI instances where we have everything pre-installed so you can experiment with it yourself and see how it works. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. There it is, you got it. Excellent, right. thank you. So who've used Jupyter Notebooks previously? Okay, so this, this will look familiar. Jupyter Notebook is a basically a web-based software that lets you run Python code inside it. You can do it one cell at a time and look at the outputs. It's great for quick experimentation. So here we have a setup where we run an instance with Spark installed on it, big DL, and we have this Python connector to Spark. So the first cell is just loading all the libra uh, libraries that I need, uh, packages, including big DL. SC is the Spark context. It's always good to run to make sure we have Spark running as expected. And this is our data set. So MNIST data set is the data set used to measure lots of algorithms for image recognition, and it comes in two parts, the training part and the test part. The training part has 60,000 images, 6,000 of which image, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 60,000 labels that tell us which image that actually is. Then we have a test set that has 10,000 images, 1,000 each, and labels. And the way we always do training and validation is we use the tra test training set to train the network or the algorithm. And then we're going to test it by using the test set. But in, in that case, we're not going to tell the network what actual 
labels are. Instead, we'll say make a prediction, and then we'll compare it to what it's supposed to be, and that's how we can measure the accuracy. And to give an idea of what the digits look like, they are, it's a digit eight, so it comes like this, and we see it like this. I will double check the number of classes. The number of classes is the number of different labels that we have, we expect it to have 10 from zero to nine, and in fact, I can print them all. So we have numbers zero, one through, through nine. The normalization just changes how our values vary in the image. Instead of zero to 255, I shrink it to 0 0.1 to 0 0.9 in the simple transformation, which will optimize the training. You actually don't have to do it. You can experiment by not doing normalization and simply feeding the raw values. It might take a bit longer to train, but you should get the same result. So now I prepared my values, and this is what the neural network in Big Deal looks like. If you remember how we designed Lonet 5, it has a convolution layer, max pooling, convolution layer, pooling, and a couple of connected layers. So it's a very simple network. And as you can see, I have one layer commented out. And in many cases, when you do deep learning, some of that is up for experimentation. So you might add a few layers or remove a few layers by using, looking at your particular data set and measuring the accuracy. So there is no uh, an exact answer, but there is some room for experimentation. So I'm gonna create this function. I'm gonna run this function. And when I run it, it creates this neural network and memory on this Spark, uh, inside Spark on this, on this computer. But what will happen if we just apply this network now? We'll pass the number. What will happen? What will be in the output? Any ideas? Well, nothing interesting, right? We just created an empty neural network, and its, it's, it's weights are zeros or random. So if we're going to pass numbers, it's just going to produce some random output. So that's not going to do anything for us. For it to be useful, we need to train it. And the way we train it is by using the train set where we feed the images and we tell the network what they're actually supposed to be. And then the network uses the algorithm called backpropagation to constantly adjust these weights until the answers of the network match what we actually tell it it should be, or at least match with high accuracy. Then we can use that network, trained network, and we can apply to new images and get the new labels, which hopefully will be precise. So the optimizer is the object and the algorithm that actually does the training. So here I create the optimizer. I'll set up some logging. And this is also a logging part. So we'll be able to see how the network is being trained. And that's it. Now we say optimizer optimize, and it will take our network, and it will start training it. So here I restricted how many passes we're going to do. The more passes you do over the data set, the more precise the network, the more accurate, but it will take more time. I limited to only three passes, which should take about a minute or two to finish. It will make our network fairly accurate, but not completely accurate. And this is how we're training the results, early results of our training. Okay, so our loss, loss is a difference between the prediction of the network and what we actually tell it it should be. It should be, it, the absolute value, unless it's zero, doesn't matter that much, but it should be declining with time, which means our network is learning. And in the second, we should see the validation 
accuracy, which will tell us how good our network is doing. So right now it's the first dot. It's the only one value here. We'll see more in a moment. So currently we have accuracy of 80%, 0.8. So that's how our network is already able to recognize images. That's not particularly good, eight times out of 10. Let's give it a few more minutes. So our loss is declining. And there we have, so we went from 0.8 to 0.84. In another iteration, we'll do a couple more iterations and that world will stop. But in reality, you'll want to run much longer than three iterations to get much better accuracy. Ninety-four. I think we're finished. Yep. So I'll remove smoothing because it reload. So now we see our three values. So with three iterations, the first iteration gave us eighty percent accuracy. By the second one, we went to ninety-two, and now we got to ninety-four. If we continue, it'll get better and better and better, going into ninety-nine percent, which is pretty good for this network. So now we have our network trained. We can apply this network to brand new numbers that it hasn't seen yet. In this case, I take our test data set and say model, please predict these values. I'll predict what the, what the numbers are. And as you can see, that was really fast. So that's another good thing about networks. Training is long and hard, but once you train it, actually inference is pretty fast. So I'm gonna collect these values and print some. So for the first 10 digits, network predicted these values. Now we can't really say if it's right or wrong, so I wrote another function that helps us pick randomly a number from the test set, prints the prediction and the actual number. So the prediction is two, the number is two, which is pretty good because it's actually a tough number. So let's see if I can find where the network made a mistake. Okay, zero, zero, five, five, six, six. Well, this could take a while. We have 94% accuracy, right? So it's on average six out of 100. All right, I'll do a few more tries. But of course, in your work, you might wanna do something more deterministic than trying to randomly guess uh, where there is a mismatch. All right, three more and I'm done. Yeah. Nope, didn't find one. So that could be your practice at home. So take this notebook, run it, train it, and then find all the, all the digits that the network recognized incorrectly and see why that may be the case. So actually, if you look at those digits, you'll see that actually they are written in pretty poor, poor way. So it's, a, it's not surprising the network has made those particular errors. So this concludes the Nakamushinor network and image recognition. We'll send you the links at the end, and now I'd like to hand over the control to Suji and you probably want the presentation back. Good stuff. Thank you, Alex. Excellent. You're up. Perfect. All right, guys. So, hope you like to. Uh, hope you like what you guys saw. Some really interesting demos. So the uh, whole big de uh, deep learning space is very interesting, right? And we, we believe Big Deal really brings um, deep learning and big data together. Uh, so and and the, the project is open source, so you know you, you can if you if you're really into it, you can really um, uh, get started with Big Deal uh, right away. 
So we want to make sure getting started with a big DL is pretty simple. Because usually, when, you, when you're getting started with this kind of complex frameworks, there's a bunch of hoops you have to jump through. You have to install a bunch of software, match the versions. We don't want you guys to jump through any of those. So what we have is um, uh, three ways you guys can run uh, big DL very easily. So we have a Docker container, we have a VM sandbox, and we have an Amazon AMI. So I'm going to go through them real quick. So if you can run Docker, this is what we recommend. Um, basically, what you do is we have a Docker container already uh, available. You pull the Docker container, uh, get our images, uh, uh, get the, download the tutorials, and then launch the Docker. So the cool thing about the setup is you're running, um, or Big Deal and Spark is running within Docker container, but all your work, your notebook, your code, they are all saved in your laptop, right? So even when you shut down your uh, Docker container, no big deal, because your, all your work is saved in your laptop. And next time you relaunch this, it'll, it'll pick up from right where it was. So this is good. Again, you know, uh, all these links will be available uh, at the end, so you guys can uh, uh, get going right away. So Docker has um, uh, you know, pretty strict requirements, uh, especially on Windows. And if you have a Windows machine that maybe not, not equipped to run Docker, uh, th this is something you can try. Uh, this is a virtual machine-based sandbox. And uh, you, know, you, know, you can run using VMware or VirtualBox. You know, pretty much any, any other virtual technologies you can use to run this. Again, download, run it. Pretty much the same concept. Uh, once you launch a tutorial, it actually launches a VM. And you can do all the work in the VM. And then you can save it, snapshot it, do all the good stuff VMs allow you to do. You can also run Docker on AWS, right? Uh, so pretty much, you know, you can spin up any, any AMI, any Linux AMI. You know, we use Ubuntu. And then basically you can pull the same Docker image that we showed earlier and download the tutorials and get going, right? So nothing changes. You know, everything, is, everything works as it's supposed to, and your work is saved locally, and you run your Docker. Also, you can run, um, uh, we have a native AMI on AMS, um, uh, with all the dependencies installed and ready to go. Right, and it's in the marketplace. You can, um, you can, you can get the AMI going and also get the tutorials. And uh, don't forget, we actually are giving out credits for AMI. Right? So if you're really curious, um, come and talk to Dave after the presentation. We'd be happy to give you some credits. So that's that. So um, again, I hope you guys saw, um, uh, like the demos you guys saw uh, with deep learning and Spark. Uh, so basically, we think big DL really fills the gap really nicely. And you can get started with Big DL very easily using you know, any of these, um, any of the technology we described. So basically, this is the link you want to go to, right? And everything you just need is right there. All the links to the tutorials, videos, and also the Docker containers we have. Right? All right, guys, thank you so much. I'm going to hand it over to Dave real quick. Um, I'm going to put this back here. Yeah. Great, thanks. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Tim, Alex, and Suji. Now, uh, a couple things I just want to mention uh, as we're running out of time here. Do a quick time check. Yep. Okay. Um, so we do have the uh, Big DL AMI up on the AWS Marketplace. Okay. If you just go to the Marketplace and search for Big DL, you'll find it. Um, and now think about this for a second. Everything we've shown you here can be done on your laptop. It can be written, done in an AMI. You could use uh, Elastic MapReduce and load the big DL library there. Um, but what's nice about this is with Spark, 
let's say this becomes very uh, workload intense, you can scale out. And you don't have to do anything different. It's all built into it. Okay, so yes, we tried to show you some uh, examples that you can try yourself, but if you end up creating a very complex um, set of uh, uh, notebooks or, or uh, code, Scala, Python, whatever, and let's say you, your data was very large, um, there's really nothing you have to change. It's Spark. It takes full advantage of distributing out that data into all the nodes. Uh, then what Big DL does is as through every iteration, each one of the, the weights that it's creating actually get re-shared and allocated across all of the different nodes, so it's all the nodes are actually training at the same time. Okay, so um, yeah, th there's a trick to this, and the trick is, instead of recreating everything from scratch, Big DL takes full advantage of Spark. All right, pretty straightforward. Now, uh, we wanna make sure that you've uh, got the opportunity to try this. So we've partnered with Amazon. Amazon and Intel are providing credits for you to try this. Just come see me afterwards. It starts off simple. It's just going to be a $25 certificate. You know, but that gives you enough you know, money to try out on you know, whatever instance you want. And, and then if, once you do that, you want more, just come see me again. I'll get you some more credits, and we'll just keep going from there. Okay. Um, and uh, just a quick note about the resources here. This is just my GitHub page, but I put the resources that... Um, uh, Tim and Alex and Suji have been talking about up there, and also the slides. So these slides, if you go to that bit.ly, that's going to redirect you to a uh, um, uh, SlideShare account with this presentation on it, so you'll have it as well. And that's it. So we're running out of time, but I think we have maybe time for a question or two. Um, so anybody have any questions? Yes, in the back there. Yeah, so uh, the question is, does, how much does it cost to run this on Amazon? As you can imagine, this is a very difficult question to answer because it really depends on your workload, et cetera. Uh, I can tell you that um, from a performance perspective, we've done some tests on some of the most recent uh, Xeon Intel processors. And uh, you know, up until recently, the most powerful processor were the C4. Okay, and with the C5, we've noticed around a 10% increase in performance. And that's because those processors are, you know, Intel's very well aware that the deep learning is uh, popular, and so they've uh, worked hard to improve the performance of the math kernel library that Big Deal takes full advantage of. It just comes with Big Deal, but it's free. It's uh, from Intel, but it enables uh, Big Deal uh, to take full advantage of the... Um, you know, the, the, the math calculations in, in the processor. So, um, yeah, that's probably where we're seeing the improvement. Um, but as far as, like, your cost, you'll have to take a look at the Amazon um, pricing for the, those instances. You probably have to test it out compared to what, you know, what your workload is and, and figure it out from there. But I would take a look at the uh, C4 and, and now the C5. Um, and... Right. We're actually working on benchmarks. Of course, we started off on benchmarks that were in the Intel Xeon uh, you know, line, and so that's where we've started now, and that's where we saw that 10% increase. Uh, and then we have some folks who are working on benchmarks with other um, processors. So, uh, yeah. Yes, question. Yes. Thank you for asking that question. I meant to mention that. Yes, it's one thing that we were very very keenly aware of is that, you know, of course there's a lot of deep learning going on outside of Spark, 
right? And there's a lot of models out there. And in fact, we're creating models. And so we want to be able to share those models. And so oftentimes you'll be able to actually take uh, a model that's been created outside of Spark and you can import it into Big Deal. TensorFlow, Cafe, and Torch, I believe, are the ones that are, um, we're working to support or are already supported. Okay, so uh, we have a model zoo up on the uh, Intel Analytics GitHub page. We've got some models we've put there that were trained in uh, Big Deal, and you can actually export and run them in um, TensorFlow or some of the others. So absolutely, that's a very good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, we probably have time for maybe one or two more questions. You were first. Great, thank you. Yeah, so um, you probably have to do a bootstrap, uh, bootstrap action, okay? That's the one I know has been working. Now, there's also, if you're using Scala, it's probably gonna be a little bit easier, and you might be able to just submit the code. Um, but if you're using Python, then I know we have to have those libraries on, on all, the, all the nodes, and Bootstrap's probably the way to work. Yes, please, beg. Oh, yeah? Oh, right, yes. Uh, So they, yeah, so for those of you online, the answer is we do have examples in Scala. They're in the, uh, if you go to the GitHub uh, slash Intel dash analytics, um, there's two repos up there. One is Big Deal and one's Big Deal uh, Tutorials. And um, you should find both Python and Scala examples there. So yeah, <laughs> thank you. All right, there was another question over here, yes. Yes. I'm gonna let Tim, come on up here, Tim. Let's let you uh, take the mic. So, so they're both supported, actually. So there's an RDD-based uh, supported API, and actually um, uh, the example that Alex showed you was using that, as well as my first Iris example. The second Iris example was using the pipeline um, ML, uh, Spark ML Live API. That one is a data frame-based API. It uses the, if you're familiar with the spark.ml um, estimator and spark.ml.transformer uh, classes, it implements those. I think, personally, that's really cool because it means is that uh, the barrier to entry for you, if you're already you know, running spark.ml, um, uh, work, you know, workloads in uh, in Spark. You can very easily drop in a uh, like a deep learning classifier or regressor or whatever, um, and then uh, and then and use that all that infrastructure there. So I'm very excited about that. Um, so and so the short answer is yes, both are available. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it actually uh, implements the. Uh, it's working with data frame, and it implements that using the uh, estimator and transformer um, interfaces. The same as, for example, you would see uh, for like the uh, GBT or RF, um, you know, uh, 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 classifiers that are already there in Spark TML. So yeah. Okay. Yep. And I think with that, we're out of time. I'm getting the sign there. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you for presenters, and please come see me about the free compute. <laughs>